You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. Welcome to This is Asbury. Today we are joined by a very interesting guest, someone who also is new to Asbury, Dr. Alex Mayfield. I want to give our listeners a bit of background on you. You joined the Asbury faculty just in 2022, recently, and you serve as assistant professor of history. Your research utilizes digital methodologies that enable the reconstruction of historical networks and movements within global Christianity. Currently, your research and teaching interests include global history, Pentecostal and charismatic movements, mission history in East Asia, and the history of colonial Latin America. This is the topic of your first book, The Kaleidoscopic City. So can you, to start off, Dr. Mayfield, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write this book? I'm looking in this book at Pentecostal missions. And, uh, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in Pentecostal churches. And uh, and so, you know, that is really my people. And I kind of came in a roundabout way to China. Like growing up, I never thought I'd be interested in missions or the global world. You know, most of us, we have a smaller vision of the world when we were younger. But through going to undergrad, got exposed to much more of the global church. And then after graduating, my wife and I got married. And then we went to China and lived there for a while. We lived in Beijing, not Hong Kong, but we did take a trip there. And, you know, as I got further along and became interested in church history and and studying these topics, I realized, oh, I want to study Pentecostals in Asia. I got to go to Hong Kong because this is where the movement there really began. That's how I kind of came to the topic. But all the other stuff about digital history and, and the global church really just came about really as I dove into my, you know, master's work and my doctoral work, I was able to pick up techniques as I went along, and it ended up, you know, in this project creating databases and doing lots of cool graphs and analysis and stuff like that, but bringing that all together so I could tell this kind of very human story. So where did you get your degrees from? Yeah, so I did actually a Master's of Divinity at Boston College. At that point, though, I was actually really discerning ministry. I thought I might go into the church, you know, serving in the evangelical Pentecostal world. Mm -hmm. However, there was this uh, one wonderful nun named Meg Guider who would say, Alex, I think, you know, God's given you the ability to do academic work if that's Mm -hmm. something you think you want to do. And so I was like, oh, I'd never considered it. And so ended up kind of moving down the street, going to Boston University for my PhD and studied there with an amazing scholar named Dana Robert. She studies kind of American missiology and missions history. And it just seemed to be looking back what God was orchestrating from the very beginning, right? Like Mm -hmm. this interest in the global church. So give us an overview of some of the key themes or points in your book and why they're significant. My book, as I was setting out to write it, and this is building off of my work with my dissertation, the book was really an attempt to describe how Pentecostals aren't crazy. Pentecostals, if you read about Pentecostals, if you go to Pentecostal services and you're not used to it, you can kind of walk away with the idea. Sometimes they get a bad reputation. (laughs) They do. And, you know, looking at the literature on this stuff, I realized when people try to tell the story of these people, they kind of make them sound like lunatics. Even one, an amazing scholar called them harebrained. And I thought, like, that's not the people I knew. I knew these people. And so I started looking back at the record and realized, you know, yeah, there's crazy 
weird stuff there. But for the most part, these Pentecostals are doing really what everybody else was doing. Like they are typical evangelical missionaries. They're for good and bad, right? And the, the good and bad parts of that. They're building schools. They're passing out and translating Bibles. They are preaching in the streets, right? And and they're doing the kind of stuff that we commend missionaries for today. But we were, for some reason, not telling that story. We were telling the story of the crazy things they did. I think every denomination, obviously, there's not one perfect one. So why is the development of Pentecostalism in Hong Kong between 1907 and 1942, which is what you've studied mm-hmm. specifically, something, why is that of significance to religious history here in America and around the world? I think we're in this phase, especially in the scholarship of the global church, of needing to really explain where did this come from? Like if you look at the church in like 18, you know, 70, it looks European, it's white, it doesn't really exist in the broader parts of the world in very large numbers. But if you look at it a hundred years later, it is a global church. I think one of the best descriptions I've heard of like if you took all of Christians and put them in a bag and you pulled one out, you're statistically most likely to pull out a young African woman. That's what a Christian actually looks like today. Telling that story is still something that scholars and leaders are are still trying to do. And so my work is part of that in a way of I want to tell this story of Christianity in China, which has a large Christian population today. It's still growing. It's a population that has charismatic and Pentecostal beliefs built in. So mine is just a small part of that story, right, of trying to say, let's put a bit of this story together because there's people who, this is their history, right? And I want to make sure that it's not missing. So during this time period, what exactly was happening in Hong Kong from 1907 to 1942? It's a crazy time because, I think, this time in China was so chaotic. You have, you know, the beginning of this period starts out with the Qing Empire, right? And then it collapses. It's replaced by a Republican government. And then by the end of it, in 1942, you know, China's being overrun by the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And then seven years later, you have the People's Republic of China being formed with the Communist Party. So there's civil wars, there's famines. It's a crazy time for mainland China. And Hong Kong was this kind of perverse in a way. It's this colonial holding that was taken by force from China. But because it's colonial, it's also this one place that's actually relatively stable. So you see a massive influx of migrants, people coming there for safety. You also see a massive flux of foreigners who are there to do business, but also missions work. And so the Pentecostals kind of arrive in the city in the midst of this kind of boom and try to preach the Pentecostal message. And they're also trying to go to the mainland and save it, but they're also being pushed back to the city because war is happening all around them. So it's a very chaotic place, and Hong Kong is this kind of island colony on the side of it in which people are trying to keep kind of pushing into China and and spread the Christian message. And Pentecostals are really part of that process. In Hong Kong, they start out as this really small group that is mixed. They kind of come in, Pentecostals, a lot of them came to China very early on with the idea that we might be able to speak Chinese with the power of the Spirit, you know, that God has (laughs) given us a tongue and that, you know, we can speak it and that if the Spirit leads, we'll be fine. They pretty quickly realize that's not what's happening. <laughs> that's the crazy part you referenced that's before. The, that's the crazy part, but that's like, it's not going to take you long to realize yeah. I'm not speaking Chinese. They quickly, you know, settle in and work with Chinese leaders. And the early period is just a period of this kind of chaotic, but sometimes beautiful, you know, interaction between Chinese leaders and Westerners. But unfortunately, part of the story of the book is also how that gets kind of squashed. As Pentecostal denominations form back in the U.S., they sort of have this global reach and impact 
on this Chinese missionary effort. And eventually, these Chinese leaders are pushed out in favor of a very strong missionary-led network. And the gospel we preached, you know, praise God. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not going to necessarily be a contextualized gospel. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be one that people flock to and, and see themselves in. One of the amazing things in telling this story was seeing all the moments, right, where missionaries are working really hard. They're doing amazing things. You see these little moments where, and then a Chinese evangelist came and everything changed. Like people got it, right? There's this one story from the Symbols of God in Hong Kong, but they were complaining that they could never reach out to the upper class Chinese. They just couldn't do it. For some reason, the upper class people wouldn't come, and it's probably because they were loud and noisy. But then they get this Bible woman, a Chinese woman named Lam Sang Ku, and she was educated. She was upper class. She spoke that language. Mm -hmm. They kind of said she was like a spitfire preacher, so she was just like going really fast but also really eloquent. And she spoke at this revival, and the missionary was like, and all of a sudden at this revival, all the upper class started coming to the Lord. Now, the, the missionary didn't make the connection that it was because of this woman. <laughs> he didn't realize. He just thought it was a miracle of the Lord. But if you, like, start actually then recreating this woman's life, you realize, yeah, it's because she was from the upper classes. Like, she was attracting these people that the missionaries didn't have any idea how to attract. And so... It's those kind of stories you want to, to capture and, and tell and say, like, here's what was gained, but also here's what perhaps was lost and can inform how we do mission today. Was this happening with the Pentecostal church in other parts of the world around the same time, or were they really specifically focused on Hong Kong during this period? Uh, well, the Pentecostal churches, you know, I'm looking at several different ones from the Assemblies of God to Pentecostal Holiness, the International Church of the Foursquare. And in Hong Kong, it's definitely playing out in a certain way because— uh, the, dynamic, the dynamics of China are different than other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But this sort of denominational process is happening writ large. Yeah. Uh, you know, as the early movement, there's no structure. So they're just working with local leaders because that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But as you have a structure back home starting to, to, you know, take shape, those local structures which were working in the beginning sometimes get pushed out. That's a great point. Well, I think a lot of this, too, just sort of ties into, in America, we're not always aware of the ripple effects of the American church and and what it has on other faith landscapes, other cultures around the world. Are there other examples that you can point to where American missionaries of a specific denomination have significantly shaped the faith landscape of a group or people? Missionaries today, I mean, are around the world really lauded and celebrated in many ways. People know that they're complicated figures, right, you know? But if you go to Korea, for instance, and talk to evangelicals there, they're not shy about the evangelical heritage. In fact, Korea is the largest missionary sending, you know, per population Mm -hmm. country today. And so they celebrate these missionaries that have come from the various, you know, from the American board or Presbyterian church or, you know, Methodist church. These people are heroes for them. And even today, there's amazing examples like Lottie Moon and the Southern Baptist. They have left a really large legacy globally mm-hmm. that people celebrate, perhaps more so you know, around the world than here in America, which yeah. is unfortunate. But this legacy continues today. You know, if you ask African pastors what's on their bookshelf, many of them are going to have Kenneth Copeland's work on their bookshelves, right? They're going to have American church pastors who are informing their ministry and their theology today. Robert Wuth now has a great book called Boundless Faith talking about this dynamic in more contemporary terms. Mm -hmm. 
But America has been exporting its faith for a long time, and that dynamic hasn't changed. I just think perhaps more people are aware of the need to do it in a really responsible way. What was the ripple effect of this spread into China after this period of time, and how did it impact the evolution of global Pentecostalism in the first half of the 20th century? The church in China and the Pentecostal mission that we see in Hong Kong, it did have ripple effects in China. They were a base for the really the spread of Pentecostal and charismatic ideas. Hong Kong published the the first Pentecostal Chinese language paper produced by a, a Chinese editor named Mok Lai Chi. They're responsible for spreading many of these ideas. However, it's a little bit complicated for different reasons. In Chinese, the term Pentecostal is a bit contested because it has some connotations that lend themselves to, you know, excess. I'm not Pentecostal. That Those people are crazy. It has that sort of vibe. Um, However, if you ask people, then if they do charismatic things like pray for healing or even speak in tongues or something like that or a prayer language, a lot more will say yes, that they do that, but they're not Pentecostal, right? So it's like a weird thing. And also it's complicated. After 1949, you don't have the same sort of independent churches in China because of the communist regime. So it's a little hard to measure their impact in China. But around the world, you know, it's pretty clear the impact they had, you know, especially in the diaspora. From the earliest times when they started producing this paper called Pentecostal Truths, they were getting people writing back from, like, Vancouver and saying, hey, there's a Chinese population in my town. Thank you for sending the paper here. It's really crazy how fast it was a sort of mission from everywhere to everywhere. We hear the Pentecostal message. We got it from these American missionaries. And then they're sending it back back to these Chinese (laughs) Chinatowns around the world. And... So there's that impact that's very direct and purposeful. And there's a lot of unintended consequences. You know, like many of the missionaries who eventually spent a lot of time in the Philippines were China missionaries. Most of the Pentecostal missionaries and Assemblies of God who are seen as like the founders or leaders of the church in the Philippines came from China because they were kicked out or the Japanese pushed them out of their normal fields. And then there's even the example of Amy Simple McPherson. She's you know super famous, an amazing woman in all rights, very interesting. If you don't know who that is, please look her up. She's kind of like the pop star of Christianity in the early 20th century. But she got married, went with her husband to Hong Kong, and then he died in Hong Kong. This became this experience, which was traumatic. Her daughter was born like a few months after her husband died in Hong Kong. It was this kind of crux moment for her, right? And it kind of redefined her life. And Robert Simple was buried in Hong Kong. And it kind of became part of her narrative of like who she was and what she was about. And she was an evangelist and a missionary and she was dedicating her life to the Lord. So much so when she eventually founds a denomination, the Foursquare, they're doing things like a Rose Bowl parade float into the Rose Bowl parade. And it was a flower boat, right, of Chinese pagoda flower boat, (laughs) you know, and you have people, it's, you know, there's a lot of Orientalist stuff going on here. It's not great, but they have at the top of it sitting there a what she called a blonde hair, blue-eyed native of Hong Kong, right? Like, it's her daughter, right, who's born there. And so these tropes and this connection to Hong Kong was really important for her as kind of proving her her bona fides to be a true missionary and Pentecostal evangelist. It's a weird ripple effect, right, that you don't expect Hong Kong and and China to show up that way. No, you really don't. It helped found the Foursquare in a really roundabout way. Hmm. So what are some of the most interesting findings you uncovered as you researched the book? You know, for example, how did the movement look different in urban colony versus a rural one? Did you find something there? What's really interesting, if you read scholarship on Pentecostals, 
There's a lot of people talking about something called like deprivation theory. You don't end up with these weirdos unless something's missing. And so many sociologists of Pentecostalism talk about Pentecostalism as an urban phenomenon, like part of the globalization process, right? People leaving the countryside to go to cities to get jobs, but they've lost their network. And then who's there waiting to catch them? The Pentecostals. The Pentecostals, right? <laughs> and so that's the idea and that many people kind of go with. And what's really interesting about Hong Kong is that none of the missionaries wanted to be in the city. <laughs> like, okay. all of them went to Hong Kong because that's where your boat takes you. Mm-hmm. But pretty quickly, all the missionaries were trying to get to the least populated places because they believed that they wanted to reach all of China. They wanted to go to the empty fields, which is a popular evangelical narrative. And so, really strangely, at least in Hong Kong, like, Pentecostalism was an urban phenomenon by accident. Like, essentially the urban environment overtook them. Like they established mission bases and and stations where they could minister to the people who were very much on the edges Mm -hmm. of urban environments or suburban environments. But then eventually, not for long, long, right? (laughs) Like Hong Kong changed so rapidly. So I think there's a counter narrative there about what Pentecostals are actually about and trying to do. But then the other thing that was so interesting to me was really the large role of education and women. Pentecostals in Hong Kong had a very strong emphasis on schools. And in fact, you could say one of the central tenets and approaches of Pentecostal missionary efforts in Hong Kong were education. That was what they were about. And Hong Kong missionary Anna Dean, she was this kind of feisty Alabama, Alab- I don't know how you say that, Alabamian? I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's it. Um, <laughs> from Bama. She's from the Bama. <laughs> and originally from Kentucky, but then okay. lived in Alabama. And she was a retiree. She went to Hong Kong because she felt the Lord call her. And she opened a school for women and children, which is a huge deal because in China, women don't get educated. And so she goes there and she opens up this school and she goes towards what's called the floating population, the Hakka people of Hong Kong and southern China. These are people who don't have jobs or they're fishermen. They're usually very impoverished. They're an ethnic minority group in China, so they're kind of on the outs. And she goes to them and establishes a school. And it is, at least as far as I could tell or most people can tell, the first school for the floating population. And so she establishes this school, and it just takes off like wildfire. The schoolrooms are packed. The mission is packed. And, you know, within a couple decades, the boat that she creates, she gets this big old boat called the Gospel Boat and the people that kind of follow after her. This boat becomes the largest Pentecostal holiness church in the world. The boat, right? But it's the largest church in the world in terms of membership for the Pentecostal holiness. And that was done, you know, really because of a steady stream of women who are stable and serving and not afraid to, like, meet the needs while also preaching the gospel. Well, all this obviously, you know, helps cultivate the growth of what we now know as Hong Kong. You know, it's not a small right. little colonial area anymore. So no. do you think there was some tie with this Pentecostal influence into what we now know as, as Hong, Hong Kong? Kong? There are a lot of charismatic churches in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong also, since 1992, is undergoing a lot of shifts mm-hmm. and it's accelerated in recent years. However, there are a lot of charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches, and the environment changed probably around the 1960s when you see another resurgence of charismatic churches. If you go to Hong Kong today, you can go to the Pentecostal Holiness Church. They have a skyscraper, and the skyscraper looks like a library. It has a book, actually, in the building itself. It's a crazy-looking building. It is enshrining this legacy of these churches, and even some independent Pentecostal churches, which kind of spun out during this period, are still there, and they're still Mm. representing this kind of classical connection. I'd like to talk to them more about this and how they see themselves in the city. 
but they are the urban heart of Hong Kong and the various areas around it. And at the very least, it was a great property investment. And they're still there, so they that's are. good. Oh, well, is there anything else that you'd like to add in closing about your research or anything else that's on your mind today? I just have been so blessed to be here at Asbury, to be around people who are excited about my research, excited about what the church is doing around the world, and also who want to learn and do it responsibly in a contextualized way that partnerships with others. And this book, I think, is part of that, but it's also part of, I think, the atmosphere of what I see around here, people who are working together for God's glory, and we're all doing it to the best of our ability by God's grace and hopefully getting better as we go. Where can people find your book when it comes out? You can find it from Baylor University Press online on their website. And you can also go to Amazon.com, just type the Kaleidoscopic City Mayfield, and it'll show up. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu. 